Well, I have the um, pleasure to introduce my good friend, Mr. Matt Brock, who's going to be bringing the word today. I asked him to come up and bring this word. Uh, the Lord has gifted my brother Matt here with uh, uh, gifting and spirit of evangelism. Uh, with, um, and it's all by God's grace, but uh, brother Matt has zeal and courage to get outside the four walls of the church and bring the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, into this world. And uh, I've had a pleasure of knowing him for a few years now. Uh, we met, it's really interesting, when you take, I love God's providence, when you get outside of the four walls of the church and you start to speak truth to the culture, the fun thing is you begin to meet people that are so like-minded, and I've met so many like-minded brothers and sisters around the state, and that's how Matt and I met uh, four, three or four years ago, because we started to see the compromise on uh, lawmakers who claim to be Christian and claim to be conservative but compromised on the issue of life. Uh, and so we met through that, through trying to end the Holocaust of abortion in South Carolina, and I'm so grateful for him. Uh, Matt's married. He's got two kids. He resides just north of Spartanburg. Uh, he serves as uh, assistant director of Operation Save America. Uh, he also is a fellow board member of an organization that him and I started, called Equal Protection South Carolina, where our vision is to end the Holocaust of abortion in South Carolina. Uh, he serves as our executive director. So I'm very thankful that the Lord brought us together. I'm thankful that you made the trip here. So uh, y'all welcome Brother Matt Brock. All right, thank you, Brother Mark. Good evening, brothers and sisters. I'm gonna back this up a little bit because I am extremely loud. All right, how are y'all doing? Good. It's a joy and an honor for me to be with you um, here today to stand behind this pulpit that's been uh, a launch pad uh, for so many, uh, for so much solid teaching and preaching uh, through Brother Mark. I'm so grateful for that, brother. Um, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. In today's version of Christianity, uh, it's becoming more and more rare to see faithful men of God proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And so you all truly have been blessed by the Lord to have uh, Pastor Mark shepherding you. I've traveled all over the, uh, really, uh, around the country in some aspects. Uh, we've been to Georgia together, but certainly all over the state. I've shared Airbnbs with this brother. Uh, we've shared hotel rooms together. And uh, through many conversations and um, just, just moments of uh, intimacy there, um, I can tell you now that he loves the Lord. He loves um, his word. Uh, he loves his family. And he loves this church. And I can tell you that um, with confidence. My hope and my prayer is that by God's grace, when we exit this building this evening, that uh, you and I will look a little more like the image of our Lord Jesus as his word comes to bear on our hearts and our minds over the next hour. So um, we've got a good bit of ground that we wanna, I want to cover here this evening. So we're going to jump right into it. But I wanted to say before I begin that what I'm sharing with you this evening um, is not something, I don't want you to have this image in your head that just because I'm standing here and you're sitting there, that I'm telling you that I've got all this figured out, that I am the expert on, on these things, that you need to, you know, you need to kind of be like me. Do not hear that. Um, that is not my uh, aim or my intention here at all. Um, I am preaching to myself just as much as I am preaching to you guys. Uh, this is for all of us. And it's just like Mark mentioned with the gospel, it's something that we never need to stop having in front of us, these things that we're going to be talking about this evening. Um, so again, for clarity, if I say something that, that pokes you or that stings a little bit, um, just know that it's been poking me uh, for about a year now. This is my fourth time 
preaching this sermon, and every time I preach it, it gets a little harder as the Lord reveals more and more about the, the, uh, the sins of omission in my life in these areas, okay? Um, some of you um, know me. I've met many of you before. Um, some of you don't, and uh, you know about the ministry uh, up in the upstate. If you followed us for any amount of time, you know that Mark even mentioned it. Uh, my heart is evangelism. I believe that evangelism is the very heartbeat of God, and I believe that because when we look in Scripture, we find that evangelism is the only means, the only means by which our Lord has decreed that his name and his glory would come to be known throughout the cosmos. Yes, he uses nature. Yes, he uses things like physics and anatomy. He shows himself in all of those things, but none of those things have been commissioned as you and I have with the Great Commission um, regarding the world. That charge was exclusive to you and I as the Church of Jesus Christ. And I know that this church is heavily evolved in, in evangelism, and you're very zealous about getting the gospel outside of the four walls of this building. And it's in that spirit of excitement and in that spirit of zeal that I want to speak to you for a few moments about being further prepared or making sure that you have things in order before you dare to wield the sword of the Spirit out there in the culture. I want to share some things this evening that I hope will help equip you. Um, I want to provide you a checklist, if you will, of some things that we need to have in order before doing public evangelism or public ministry. Um, one thing I've learned over the last several years, I've come to find out that there are some very deep and some very deadly pits that you and I can find ourselves in if we overlook some very foundational components to engaging in spiritual warfare. That's not something, that term you don't hear a whole lot in Reformed circles, um, but Ephesians 6, Apostle Paul tells us that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are wrestling with things that live in a realm that we can't readily see as humans. It's demonic, and it is real. It is tangible. And uh, you need to know what you're up against, and you know how to be prepared to engage in spiritual warfare. Um, I've traveled all over the country speaking on evangelism with OSA, urging the church to get involved in things outside of the four walls of their buildings. And over that time, I've come to see that there's really two obstacles, two hurdles, if you will, that most churches need to navigate. The first one, Mark and I do a lot of work on with the churches in South Carolina the first hurdle is just getting the church to acknowledge and to go to the scriptures and realize that part of our duty is to be involved out in the world. That our, our job, our, the gospel that we preach, can't stay here. It must go out there. Believe it or not, that's a, that's a problem for a lot of modern churches today. So a lot of our time uh, is spent getting the church, trying to get the church outside of the four walls, and then even getting them furthermore to realize that the South Carolina State House doesn't get a pass, that Christ is king over that area too. Um, I know your pastor well, so I know that that's not an issue for this congregation. So praise God, we're going to move on to hurdle number two, um, which is what we're going to talk about this evening. Hurdle number two is making sure that you're prepared and equipped for the task of carrying out the Great Commission faithfully. Making sure that everything in your life is operating in the divine order that has been laid out for us in the scriptures. 
Some of you may be sitting there thinking, Matt, we're just talking about getting the gospel outside of the church. We're talking about loving people with the light and the love of Christ. How, how bad could this be? You sound like we're getting ready to step into battle or we're getting ready to go toe-to-toe with, with some gangs or something like that. That's not what we're doing. We're just going out here and loving on people with the gospel. Why are you so serious? And if that's the lens that you're looking at evangelism through, I want you to pay close attention for the next little bit because... It's that very way of thinking that will lead many of you straight into a snare that the enemy has set for you. I've already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul uses warfare imagery in Ephesians 6 when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped, to your, strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Brothers and sisters, Paul spoke of evangelism as if it were war. And as your brother I would encourage you this evening to consider these things to make sure you are taking these matters as serious as you ought. Because I can tell you now both from Scripture and from personal experience, when you settle in your heart that you are going to make Christ known in your community and you dare to step outside the walls of this building, step outside the safety and the comfort of what this building provides, and you go out there and you open your mouth and you open your Bible and you proclaim to the world, thus says King Jesus... You have just painted a massive target on yourself, your home, and on this church. And you've got hell's attention. And they're going to come at you with everything that they have to shut you up and to shut you down. And that's a promise. So again, my aim this morning is to hopefully better equip you and better prepare you for what lies ahead so that you can mitigate some of these risks, many of which I have fallen into and had to repent of myself over the years. We need to make sure that when we go out there and we proclaim Christ, that we're ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us to anyone who may ask, and we need to make sure that we can do that faithfully and confident that everything in our life is functioning properly and in order as Christ commands it to be. And it's with that thought in mind, I want to go to the word of the Lord And dive into our text for this evening. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Leviticus 14. Leviticus chapter 14. Some of you are thinking, man, Matt, I think that's a leprosy passage. What in the world does that have to do with evangelism? Leviticus 14, we're going to be starting in verse 33. And we're going to finish out the entire chapter, the rest of the chapter there. So starting in verse 33. Hear now the words of the Lord. And the Lord further spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When you enter 
into the land of Canaan, which I give you for possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession, then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. The priest shall then command that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark, so that everything in the house need not become unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. So he shall look at the mark, and if the mark on the walls of the house has greenish or reddish depressions and appears deeper than the surface, then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. The priest shall return on the seventh day and make an inspection. If the mark has indeed spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall order them to tear, down the tear out the stones with the mark in them and throw them away at an unclean place outside of the city. He shall have the house scraped all around inside, and they shall dump, pl dump the plaster that they scrape off at an unclean place outside of the city. Then they shall take other stones and replace those stones, and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house. If, however, the mark breaks out again in the house, after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house, and after it has been replastered, then the priest shall come in and make an inspection. If he sees that the mark has indeed spread in the house, it is a malignant mark in the house, and the house is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones, its timbers, and all the plaster of the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever goes into the house during the time that he has quarantined it becomes unclean until evening. Likewise, whoever lies down in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever shall eat in the house shall wash his clothes. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in and makes an inspection, and the mark has not indeed spread in the house, after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, because the mark has not reappeared. To cleanse the house, then, he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop, and he shall slaughter the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. Then he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird as well as the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and the running water along with the live bird with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and with the scarlet string. However, he shall let the live bird go free outside the city into an open field. So he shall make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. This is the law for any mark of leprosy, even for a scale, and for a leprous garment or house, and for a swelling or for a scab, and for a bright spot. To teach when they are unclean and when they are clean, this is the law of leprosy. Now many of you may be wondering why in the world I would choose that particular passage to uh, make the point that I'm trying to make, and I want to be clear I could have used a plethora of stories throughout Scripture because the theme that we're sharing this evening is, is consistent throughout all of it. But what I wanted you to see here is the, the extremely descriptive process that God established for the cleansing and redemption of the diseased house. Now, I don't want you to even focus so much on the issue of leprosy as much as I do the fact that God, in His sovereignty, in His providence, and in His omniscience, had a very specific way 
A very specific method and a very specific means for ridding the house of this horrific and grotesque situation. Furthermore, I want to draw your attention to, and I really want to dial in here, to another fact that is when we, you and I, who are called by God to be kingdom of priests in this world, when we try and cleanse the house, as it were, by our own methods, by our own means, and by our own methods, we not only hinder the cleansing process, but we inadvertently stumble into disobedience and position ourselves danger close to the very judgment of our holy God. Allow me to remind you of two men by the names of Nadab and Abihu. These were two priests who were given very specific instructions on how to concoct the ceremonial incense that was to be used in temple worship in the Old Testament. How many know this story? For some reason or another, we don't, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but for some reason or another, Nadab and Abihu, they strayed away from this sacred recipe and they offered up instead what the Bible calls strange fire to the Lord. Strange fire that would ultimately cost them their very lives as God killed them for their pragmatism and their disobedience. Another example is the tragic story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel. Some of you know this story. It's where the people of God, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And the oxen who are hitched to the cart that are carrying the Ark, they begin to come across some rocky ground. And uh, Uzzah, he's walking beside the, the cart there, and he looks up and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this is like the most holy thing that God ever created, right? This is the very presence of God in a box, if you will. It's the mercy seat of God. And here Uzzah looks up and sees this thing getting ready to fall off of the cart and into the dirt. So what does he do? He does what I would have done. He does what probably everyone in here would have done. He reaches up and he tries to sturdy the ark with his hands and with his body. We used to have a saying in the Marine Corps, good initiative, bad judgment. God killed Uzzah for trying to save the ark. Why? Was it because Uzzah's intent was bad? No. Was it because his motives were not pure? No. I'm sure Uzzah had great intentions. But Uzzah went around. He rerouted the very command of God that said, Do not touch the ark. And in an attempt to do something good, he disobeyed and God killed him. If I'm being 100% transparent with you this evening, that story frustrates me sometimes. Um, because when I read that, again, I see myself there. That's what I would have done. Trying to do a good thing here, Lord. Here's a good man who's doing nothing more than trying to help, and because he simply touches something, God strikes him dead. On the surface, that may seem a little harsh, but as we continue on here, we'll soon discover that it's this very pragmatic way of thinking that could very well be the reason why darkness has gained ground in our nation 
in our state, in our own churches, and even in our homes. Because we have abandoned the way that God says things to need to be done and have decided that we possibly have a better way. How many know that we serve a God of order tonight? How many know that God's order or God's ways and man's ways hardly ever, if ever, look alike? I'd be willing to bet that if you and I were the creators of the universe, given what we know about science and how things work in nature, we would have created the sun before we created the trees and the flowers and all the greenery, wouldn't we? It just makes sense. We know that trees and flowers need sunlight to grow and conduct photosynthesis, which in turn uh, supplies our atmosphere with this stuff called oxygen that all of us are enjoying here this evening. It's a necessity for life itself. But God didn't do it that way, did he? On day three, you get trees and flowers, but it's not until day four that we get the sun. Why? Because he's God and we're not, and he doesn't do things the way that we think that they need to be done. How about this one? If we were the ones to draw up the battle plan for how the walls of Jericho would come tumbling down, not a one of us in here, I would bet, would tell everyone to leave their swords and the battering rams at the house and instead grab your sneakers and some trumpets because we're going to walk around this baby seven times and it's going to fall down because that's what God said. It doesn't make sense. That's crazy talk. How about this one? Who in here, if you would have been in charge of writing the story of the redemption of the world, would have written into the history of time that the very Son of God would be slaughtered by his own people and then risen on the third day? You know, that one was so far out of left field that hell didn't even see it coming. The scripture said, had they known that that was the plan, they would have never killed him. God's ways are not our ways. He is a God of order, but he is a God of his own order and not ours. It was the Levite priest that was given the responsibility and the authority by God to perform the cleansing of the house. But the beneficiary of that cleansing was the one who needed the cleansing. It was the one with the disease. It was the house. It was the community. It was the leper. This method of cleansing was established by God as a gift of grace to the leper and to the owner of the home where the disease had manifested and to the community in which this home was built. But, catch this brothers and sisters, this grace, this gift of being cleansed from leprosy, it would only be realized if the one who had been commissioned by God to administer the cleansing was faithful to administer the cleansing the way God designed it to be ministered. I want to stop right here for a minute make sure that you're all seeing the picture I'm trying to paint here. We, you and I, we've been commissioned by God to cleanse the world of sin through the proclamation of the gospel of King Jesus. 
and by actively opposing wickedness and unrighteousness wherever it may be in our midst. However, we do not have free reign or autonomy to decide how that commission is to be carried out. Like the Levite priest, we have been given very clear instruction on how to execute our orders. And brothers and sisters, we need to make 100% certain that those orders are executed faithfully and in divine order. If the priest was faithful to execute God's commands the way God ordained his commands to be executed, the house would be cleansed. But on the contrary, if the priest was unfaithful to God's means of cleansing, it was the house that would suffer the consequences of the priest's pragmatism and disobedience. Do you see that? And so, brothers and sisters, the question I want you to wrestle with this evening is this. As you're going out there, whether it's individually, as a family, or as a a body of believers, as you're going out and you're preparing to go out to wage war against the dragons of child sacrifice and paganism and promiscuity and unjust and wicked laws, homosexuality, tyranny, all of these things that exist out there, as you're preparing to go and tackle those things, let me ask you, are you trusting in the means and the method that King Jesus established at his ascension? Or, like me at times, have you adopted a form of godliness while denying its power by allowing your own pragmatic ways and ideas to mix in with God's sovereign order? Allow me to remind us what exactly it is that we're supposed to be doing. In Leviticus 14, the priest was commissioned by God to cleanse a house of leprosy. That was part of his duty as a servant of the Most High God. But what have you and I been commissioned to do? If there were ever a passage that summed up the church's marching orders, I would say it's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. King Jesus is ascending to the right hand of the Father, and he makes the most political statement ever recorded in history. You already know what he said. He said, all power in heaven and where? On earth are now his. Because that's true, our job is to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. There may be some different eschatological views represented here this evening, so... I want to be sensitive to that, and I don't want you to turn me off if uh, your view of the future is not uh, optimistic. Mine is. Um, But wherever you fall on that spectrum, I believe that we could all agree that Christ is king, amen, that he is reigning and ruling right now, and that the prophecies given in passages like Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Isaiah 9, and so many more were not merely spiritual realities. Christ prayed that the kingdom of God would be realized on earth as it is in heaven. And he gives examples to his disciples like the mustard seed and like leaven going into bread and working its way through the whole loaf. He was illustrating in very elementary terms that the kingdom of God would start very, 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 very small. In their case, with 12 
unbelievably confused men, many of them teenagers, but would then eventually spread to the entire world. And the means by which our Lord has decreed that to come to pass is by you and by me being faithful to make disciples where we live, work, and play. Or as Jesus himself put it when he called his very first disciples, we are to go fishing for men. That's an interesting choice of words that Jesus used there, and I think it helps make a great illustration for us because, as we all know, Peter was a fisherman. But Peter knew there was a lot more involved with fishing than just showing up and throwing a net or a hook in the water. Peter knew that there were logistical and administrative things that needed to be in place. Peter knew that he needed to make sure that there was enough bait, that there was a backup net. Has the boat been looked over for leaks and damages before we get out there on that rough water? Is my crew working as a unit? Does everyone know what they're supposed to be doing? And do we all have the same end goal in mind? These were things that Peter knew. And it's that very thought I want to challenge you with this evening as you prepare to set sail as a body to go fishing for men. Fishing for men, making disciples. This is the mission that we've been given by our Lord Jesus. But I think if we're honest, brothers and sisters, when we think about making disciples, when I say that to you, it's very possible that your thoughts and your intentions go directly to the world and bypass your homes. Being on mission to make disciples is a lot easier when we focus on the people outside of our homes more than we focus on the people inside of our homes. It's far easier to go into the public square and proclaim the word of God and clock out as you're heading back home. That's a lot easier than it is to be on top of it when you wake up and when you lie down And when you walk along the way with your children and your spouses, that takes determination. That takes commitment. And that takes sacrifice. It's easy to focus on the things like getting dirty books out of libraries, getting abolition bills to the floor of the House and the Senate so that we can send child sacrifice back to hell from where it came, getting wicked men out of office, getting godly men put into office, All of these things are good. All of these things are expected of us as the people of God. And all these things are honoring to Him. But we need to be sure that we aren't skipping over the things that God said take priority. God is a God of order. And just like the priest cleansing the house, if we don't get this order right... Who is it that pays the price for our disobedience and pragmatism as the priests of God? It's the diseased house that will be torn down and thrown outside the gates. It is the diseased diseased house that will never experience redemption and healing. And the way that that translates to us today is if you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, do not deliver on the commission in the way God intended, it is our neighbors who are diseased with sin. It is our communities that, is, that are diseased with sin. It is our state and our nation that is diseased with sin. They are the ones that will pay the price 
for our apathy, our pragmatism, and our disobedience. If you're struggling with that, let me challenge you to look at the current state of the modern American church today. According to the most recent Barna polls, when you take the statistics of divorce, porn use, substance abuse, fornication, and yes, abortion, you got a column of the church and you have a column of the world, and you take the titles off of each of those so you can't tell who's who. When you read through the statistics, you can't see a difference. No difference. And the church is getting ready to overcome a lot of the numbers on the world side. The vast majority of the professing church in this nation has absolutely zero regard for scriptures or living a holy life under the Lord. They come in week in and week out. They, they drink their coffee. They cry during the, the worship music, if we can call it such a thing. It's basically repetitive garbage that has hardly any mention of Christ, any theological meaning. And yet you look out and there are people falling apart, emotional, tears just pouring, and it looks real. What is going on there? Well, it could have something to do with the fact that when you walk in, the lights are turned off, the candles are burning, the soft music's playing. Sounds like they're setting the mood. But what happens after the service is over? They get up, they go to their cars, they jam out to Cardi B all the way home with their kids in the back seats. Some of you may be saying, I don't even know who that is, praise God. Don't go Google her. And then these same people get mad at us as they're walking out, or as, as we're calling out to them because they're walking into an abortion clinic to murder their children. This is what calling yourself a Christian looks like today in America. And you and I, we're the reason that people think that that's okay. And we need to own that. That's, that's our fault. Because we have abandoned biblical evangelism by making the world comfortable in their sin in the name of love and in the name of compassion so that they feel welcome on the Lord's Day in the midst of their sin. I'm speaking in generalities here. I'm not trying to whoop this church. I know you're all on top of it. Paul Washer once said that the peak of idolatry in America happens during the worship hour on Sunday morning. And I believe he's correct. Church, there is a huge need, a huge need, for the true church of Jesus Christ to be very vocal about the gospel and the commands of God. Which again is why I'm so excited to see that the Lord is raising up churches like this one and several others around the state to step up to the plate. But as you're stepping up to the plate, I want to give you a few warnings. And again, these are from personal experience. If you're not careful, 
brothers and sisters, with all the excitement and all of the evangelism planning and all of the fruit and celebration that will come as the Lord blesses your efforts, if you're not careful in the midst of all of that, it's very easy to unintentionally give yourself a pass on the things that God has placed in your life as a primary mission field. And it will become easy to neglect those primary things for secondary mission fields. And this goes back to the priest refusing to cleanse the house the way God designed the house to be cleansed. We need to be sure that we don't become a hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom by harboring sins of omission in the very secret places of our hearts. If we are to glorify God truly in our works, then brothers and sisters, those works must flow from a temple that is rooted in personal holiness and is in good order with what God has commanded. We're all human here, I hope. We're all given to the same temptations and struggles, generally speaking. So I'm going to share some personal things with you because I know that more than likely these things will be something that you will either come to face, come face to face with in the, in the near future or you've already dealt with them. I ministered out in front of the Greenville Women's Clinic for about three years full time. That's the busiest abortion clinic in the state of South Carolina. Two thirds of all babies in South Carolina are murdered at that place. And for three years I was out there almost every day pleading with moms and dads with the gospel. Some of you have seen this on Facebook. We've got to climb the big 14-foot ladder to get over the fence. During that time, there were thousands of gospel proclamations, <clears throat> hundreds of one-on-one -on -one conversations that took place with parents who were going in and paying a hitman to kill their children. Some of those conversations, even with the staff of Greenville Women's Clinic. Around that time, there were also about 70 babies that were saved from death. And that work continues on today through the labors of a dear brother, Pastor Kylie Waldrop. But those numbers are just some of the numbers that happened while I was there and, and kind of running things. And it was a God-honoring work that we did. And I, I praise him for everything that happened out there. But if I'm being completely transparent with you this evening, there were times that I treated a save at that murder mill like some sort of compensation to God for not leading my family in worship, prayer, and the reading of Scripture. There were days where I hadn't spent more than 20 minutes with the Lord all week long. I was just busy doing God's work. I would post stuff on Facebook, hadn't talked to the Lord in days, hadn't read in days, and I would post something super spiritual on Facebook. And a lot of people thought, oh, Matt's God's best friend, and man, look at all the stuff he's doing. And all the while, my family was starving spiritually. And I want to be clear, I wasn't doing that intentionally. I wasn't trying to be deceptive. I genuinely thought that what I was doing was good. I genuinely thought that there was nothing more sacrificial or godly than going out there and literally laying your life down for your preborn neighbors. And I still believe that. 
So my heart and my intent was good, but again, like Uzzah, my execution was way off. And I know a lot of pastors. Mark probably does too. I know a lot of pastors who have poured their heart and their souls and their very lives into their ministries for decades only to have their children walk away from the Lord the first chance they get. When you sit down and when you ask these brothers, broken-hearted, broken over this, weeping, and you ask these men, what do you think happened? Their head will drop down, and they'll tell you. Every one of them says the same thing. I place shepherding my church as a priority over shepherding my family. Didn't mean for it to happen. I was doing my best to follow the Lord and look after the ones that he had given me to steward over. Had the best of intentions, but I misjudged it big time. And they end by saying what I wouldn't give to go back and do it in order. About two years ago, I was preaching out at the murder mill in Greenville, and it was the best day ever. There were probably 15 brothers or sisters out there with me. This wasn't a Saturday. I think it was maybe like a Tuesday. It was a day where there were hardly ever any Christians there. And this particular day, there were 15 people that showed up. I don't know if it was like a get-out-of-work-free day or what, but uh, there was usually one or two of us there, and today there were 15 people. So, man, we had... It was like a revolving door of preachers climbing up and down the ladder. We had a system going, and it was beautiful. We saw two babies saved that day in a matter of about three hours, one of which we were able to actually get that family plugged into a local church where they're serving even today. Um, at the end of this uh, trip... Some random guy came up and said, hey, man, I just happened to be driving by and rolled the window down and heard you guys preaching the gospel. I want you to know how much I appreciate you. Here's a $500 uh, check to go towards your ministry. Things were happening. The Lord's blessing. Things, are, things seem to be going in the right direction. I left there and I actually had a late lunch with a legislator who uh, later told me that he was convicted about not being on board with equal protection, and out of that meeting, he actually went and co-sponsored our bill. Which, Mark will tell you, that's a big deal. So all of this stuff happened in one day. I mean, my mind is blown thinking about, you know, the goodness of God and how much he's blessing this. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little big-headed about it. I was like, man, look at what God's doing through me, you know? I get home, it's probably about 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening, and my wife's inside. i got two little girls, and uh, they go to a Christian school that my wife um, ministers at. And uh, she's ironing their clothes and, you know, getting all that stuff good to go for the next day. And I come in, and I'm just over the moon about everything that's happened this day. I'm like, honey, you've got to sit down and listen to this. Let me tell you what the Lord has done today. You're not, you're not going to believe it. And she looked at me back, and she just smiled. And she said, honey, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's great. 
But anyone in here that's been married for more than like two minutes, you know when your wife says something, but when she's like meaning something else. I was getting kind of that vibe coming from her, and I was like, something's not right. But uh, I hadn't seen them all day long, so I didn't want to get in some big long debate. I'm like, okay, we'll be in bed in a couple more hours, and we'll, you know, we'll have our little one-on-one time. Let's, let's be with the girls and have our little family time. And we wasn't mad at each other. There wasn't like this weird tension, but I could tell something. There, there was a conversation coming, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I'm thinking maybe something happened at school. Maybe something, you know, maybe she got a nasty email from a parent. Surely I've not done anything wrong. That was a joke. And um, we wrap up the day, and we're laying in bed, and I, just, I said, honey, what? What's, what's, what's going on? What's the matter? <clears throat> and that was all it took. And with tears streaming down her eyes, she looked at me, and she said, Matt, I am so proud of what the Lord is doing through you. I'm so grateful that he's given me a husband that loves me, that loves our kids, that loves the Great Commission, that loves these babies, that's not worried about, you know, she just, she, she just bragged on me for about two minutes. And then she said, but you've not hardly spoken a word to me of the girls in about two or three weeks. She said, you've been so busy doing that stuff. She said, it almost feels like you've forgotten about us. And it was like a 20-pound sledge, just pfft. all that wind in my cells was gone. We wonder why 70 million babies have been murdered under the watch of a nation that claims to be under God. We blame the media, we blame the left, we blame Biden, we blame the Democrats, we blame the rhinos. The pro-life industry, the fingers start pointing anywhere and everywhere. But how often, brothers and sisters, do we consider looking in the mirror and examining our own personal holiness with regards to the things that God has immediately called us to? Like loving our wives the way that Christ loves his church, men. Like raising our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord teaching them about the holiness and the lordship of Christ when we sit down and when we rise up and walk throughout our day, Deuteronomy 6. Women, to submit to your husbands as to the Lord, looking well to the ways of your households, refusing to eat the bread of idleness, Proverbs 31. God is a God of order. If this church goes out into the public square and passes out thousands of tracts, preaches the gospel to thousands of people, brings in and baptizes a hundred people in the next year. But all of these things are done at the expense of your own personal holiness or the spiritual well-being of your family. We're out of order. And I believe that we're subconsciously trying to compensate for our lack of obedience with works. And that is a dangerous place to be when you're dealing with the very God of the universe who demands our faithful obedience. When we esteem ministries outside of our home higher than ministry inside our homes, we are out of order. And I do not believe that God is going to be honored in our efforts because what we're essentially saying to him 
is, hey, we're on your side, we acknowledge that you're king, we acknowledge that you're sovereign, but we think we've got a better way to do this. And brothers and sisters, that is high treason to the king of glory. He killed people for that. Matt, what are you saying? Are you saying that if I'm not, if I'm not leading my family well in prayer and in scripture that I shouldn't be going out to the abortion mills or doing any other ministry? What I am saying is that when we look in scripture, the constant and consistent means that bring about victory among the people of God and among the nations is by doing things the way God said they are to be done. Not by how we think they should be done. And the way that God says things need to be done starts with the sanctification of the man, then the sanctification of the family, then the church, then the nations. Are you going to be perfect in every area of life? No. We see clearly in Scripture that the Apostle Paul struggles with his failures and his shortcomings. But brothers and sisters, that's the point. Paul wrestled with his shortcomings. What I'm trying to raise awareness about tonight is the fact that many of us don't even realize we have shortcomings. We, t we focus on the sins of commission and we easily gloss over the sins of omission. I think that's where we're getting into trouble. Paul struggled with his blind spots. We need to return to a position of humility by spending time in our prayer closets begging God as the psalmist does in Psalm 139 saying, point out anything in me that's offending you. And then we need to be ready to quickly repent when he does. Godly men make godly homes. Godly homes make godly churches. Godly churches make godly communities, which make godly states, which make godly nations. So brothers and sisters, make sure you're constantly, constantly, constantly examining your heart, your personal pursuit of holiness, and even your intentions. I would say especially your intentions. According to Hebrews 4.12, it's not only your actions that will be judged on the last day, but the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. I can fool people on Facebook. You can fool people on Facebook. But he knows. Something else to remember as you step out into the public square is that, and brothers and sisters, please get this, do not define success by what you can see. Do not define success by what you can see. Your success in evangelism is not measured by the response that you get from people. Should we pray that people believe and repent because of our efforts? Absolutely. If you've got a team of brothers and sisters that are going out to pray, there needs to be a team of brothers to, to, to proclaim the gospel at the same time, there needs to be an established team of brothers and sisters somewhere praying for that effort, praying for the hearts of the people that are going to hear the gospel, praying specifically that they will repent and turn to Christ. 
Our prayers should be turned that way, yes and amen. But your mission in evangelism is not primarily to bring people into the kingdom of God. Now that may be rubbing y'all wrong a little bit. I'm going to say it one more time. Your primary mission in evangelism is not bringing people into the kingdom of God. Does he do that? Yes. Do we pray that he does that? Yes. But is that the point? No. Your primary mission in evangelism is to preach a faithful, unadulterated, pure gospel that does not use manipulation, that does not use sugarcoating or trickery to get someone to profess that they believe. Preach Christ. Pray for those to come under conviction. And then shut up and leave the rest to God. Some of you may be saying, well, Matt, if our primary mission isn't to get people into the kingdom of heaven, then why preach? We don't have time to go into it right now, but write down Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel 3. Go read those on your own time. But I'm going to quickly encapsulate those for us. In Ezekiel 2 and 3, God comes to Ezekiel, the prophet, and he says, I'm sending you to the Israelites who are a rebellious nation. They've rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt to me to this very day. The people who I'm sending you to are obstinate and stubborn. So go call them to repent. Say to them, thus says the Lord, and then go into it. And what's interesting is there's like a back and forth between God and Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's like, why are you sending me to them? They're not going to listen to me. It's a waste of time. God says whether they listen or not, they will know that I have sent a prophet to them. Two things happen when the gospel goes out of your mouth. God uses it to bring repentance and salvation, but God also uses it to pronounce judgment. And the modern American church is not okay with that. Go read the Exodus. Go read Romans 9. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because he got glory out of the judgment. The whole point, the whole point in Moses going to Pharaoh and urging Pharaoh to repent and to turn and to let go was so that God's glory would be known through judgment. And guys, we don't know which one of those God has in store for the people that are up under our voice. So don't try to manipulate that. Don't try to figure it out. Preach a faithful gospel and go home. God is a God of order. And it is 100% essential that we get this order correct. We've gone over a couple of reasons why, but here's another our obedience to do things the way that God commanded them to be done, even we, when we don't see it, every time, <clears throat> excuse me, without fail, points to the majesty and the glory of his son, King Jesus. Are there any typology fans in here? I absolutely love seeing the Old Testament stories that project the coming Messiah. Some of you may have picked up on it, some of you may not have, but 
We get some of that in Leviticus 14. What do we have? We have a diseased house. We have a blood sacrifice that is slain inside of an earthenware vessel. We have some water. We have some wood. We have some hyssop. Any of this ringing a bell? Thousands of years after Leviticus 14, the very God of the universe comes in, takes on flesh, earthenware vessel. He is slain in that earthenware vessel of a man. He hangs on a wooden cross. He drinks vinegar from a sponge that is lifted up to his uh, lips by the stalk of a hyssop plant. Water flows from his side from the wound of a centurion's spear. And our sins, praise God, the reddest scarlet in that very moment were made white as snow. All of these elements come together because of the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus being obedient to the process that God designed. In Philippians 2.8, it says, Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You and I this evening, full of an incurable disease called sin, deserving nothing more to be destroyed and thrown outside of the city, are now cleansed by the blood of our high priest Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, the priest in Leviticus, he was not only providing a way for the leprous house to be cleansed, but also by being faithful to God's means in this matter, he was indirectly proclaiming the gospel of the Messiah in types and in shadows to God's people. So to not follow God's means was not merely delaying the cleansing of the house, but it was also presenting a false representation of how our Lord Jesus would save his people. God is a God of order and he calls us to be the same. Why? Because everything he does, everything he commands, and everything he decrees is centered on the glory of his Son. This is why Mark and I go and we appeal to our legislators to give equal protection and equal justice to our preborn neighbors. We don't appeal to them with logic and with reason. We do use some of that, but that's not our main go-to appeal. We don't lean on pragmatism or what we think might work. We don't appeal to them with man-made schemes and strategies. And the reason why is because in those things... Men are able to get glory in their own creativity. So rather, we appeal to them with the law of God under the authority of God because it is there and only there that Christ our King receives all glory for accomplishing the impossible. In closing, brothers and sisters, remember to always make sure that your zeal for the lost is wrapped both in knowledge and in grace. 
When you're out evangelizing, you're going to be mocked. Some of you already know what that feels like. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be, some of you maybe doxxed, plastered on people's social media, uh, social media accounts as a crazy, intolerant bigot. All of these things are going to more than likely happen if they hadn't happened already. When that time comes, when people are calling your church and your pastors and your elders bigots, and they make a mockery of Christ, remember to make sure that your zeal is wrapped in knowledge and grace. Constantly remind yourself of passages like Ephesians 2, where Paul tells us that the only reason why we in here don't look like them out there is pure grace. Be zealous. Be passionate. Just make sure that zeal and passion is tampered with grace. Amen? Remember, it was Peter's passion and zeal for Jesus that led him to chop off the ear of Malchus, one of the slaves of the high priest who had come to arrest Jesus that night. And Jesus actually performed his next miracle, restoring what Peter's zeal damaged. I end with this. If you're sitting here tonight and like myself, you, you kind of hit a wall and you, you saw, man, I, there's some things I need to repent of. You're coming to the realization that maybe some things are out of order. Don't, don't be ashamed and tuck tail and run and go home. You're needed. God has given you gifts. He's given you talents and resources and abilities. And those things are to be used to advance his kingdom. So don't let this discourage you or make you want to go home. Just acknowledge that though your intentions have been pure, perhaps maybe your execution's been a little off. And just repent. Just repent. Revelation 1.6 says that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. As his priests... As his ambassadors in the earth, brothers and sisters, let's represent him well. Let us represent him faithfully in our personal holiness, in our marriages, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, and to the very ends of the earth. This is the divine order, and this is the way. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to share, Lord, some of the things that you've raked my soul over the coals with in the past. Lord, you know that the struggles I still have with this, Lord, this is something that constantly needs to be before us because we are a forgetful people. You pour your grace, you pour your mercy, and we embrace it and we praise you for it, and the next day we go out and we do the same. Lord, give us endurance in these areas. Lord, help us to not have to repent over and over and over, but Lord, help us to repent once and to never go back. Lord, there's a world out there that is on fire and is perishing, and Lord, they're looking for answers, and God, we have them. And Lord, you have called us, you commanded us to go out and share that truth with all of the world. But Lord, you've also called us to lead our families well, to steward those things immediately. And, um, 
Lord, I've got repenting yet to do in a lot of that. So, Lord, would you continue to be patient with us, continue to give us grace and mercy, continue to enlighten us through your spirit and through the reading of your word. Lord, that when we go out there, we can stand confidently knowing, Lord, to the best of our abilities, we are honoring you, not just publicly, but, Lord, in the most private and secret places of our hearts. Because, Lord, that's where you're truly worshipped. That's where you're truly magnified and glorified in your people. It's not in what, what people see, God. It's, it's in what only you see. So, Lord, help us to be genuine and real. And, Lord, help us to do it all for your glory. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, would you equip them? Lord, would you um, Lord, just make the path before them so easy, so straight? And, Lord, would you bless their efforts as they do these things for your kingdom and your glory? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Pray that that encouraged you like it did me. If anything, you came up here to encourage and exhort and remind me of many things I need to know and remember in my life. So, you guys, uh, those of you who ha know me, it doesn't take that long to know me that uh, Matt and I share the same zeal in our desire and our passion to see the kingdom of Christ and the gospel spread throughout the entire world, starting in our home uh, and in our communities after that. So I pray that this word was encouraging. I pray that it stretched you a bit. I pray that the Lord worked in your heart uh, as Matt brought the word.